This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. Helen Farmer with you on today's episode. We have got inspiration and education. Chatting with Nelly Atta, born and raised in Saudi. She's the first Arab to summit K2. She's also a world record holder. We were talking about challenges, endurance, inspiration and faith. And also grief as well, which tied us so beautifully to our conversation with Seema Akawi, an author, a teacher. who's written a book called With You always it's for children she wrote it after she lost her husband when she was seven months pregnant what lessons have she learned and we were marking childhood cancer awareness day dr nancy specialist in pediatric oncology joined us live an inspirational one guys and great to have you with us Mesa Fahor, a.k.a. Coach Mesa EQ, is with us. She's a licensed conscious parenting coach, cognitive behavioral therapist, and she says in her words, she helps parents become more confident. Crucially, she is a straight-talking mum of four. Mesa, how are you? Hi, Helen. I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm very well, although I'm feeling a I'm feeling a little bit um, triggered by all the messages that we're getting on on what people were fighting about when they were kids. We are talking sibling rivalry today. Um, and I wondered if you could take a trip down memory lane. How many siblings do you have? I have four. Four gosh. brothers and myself. Oh, my gosh. And um, were there fights in the household growing up? Is that a silly question? <laughs> There, there was definitely there was definitely squabbles and fights, and I think that it's really valuable for parents to cast their minds back onto their childhood sibling stories. Well, this is why I'm asking today because I feel like we have all these ideals and expectations of our own children, you know, mm. getting on beautifully. But when we reflect on actually what we were like as kids, that was not the reality at all. And when I think about I guess the intense emotions I had about my brother. And when I say intense, I don't say this lightly. I hated him, like viscerally Mm. hated him. But then equally, Mm. you know, loved him with a ferocity and he's now one of my favorite people. How valuable Mm. is that sibling relationship for, I guess, trying out some of these really big feelings? Yeah, super, super important to understand that even though you are a sibling or you have a sibling, you are still an individual with your own needs, with your own desires, with your own opinions. And so once we start to look at our children as separate humans that have got a different ideology, a different characteristic and temperaments, then we can start to kind of, you know, remove that narrative in our head of what did I do wrong and are my children going to hate each other forever? Mm. Because in essence, siblings is, well, it's the first relationship of a child's life, you know, outside of mum and dad, of course, or caregiver. And so siblings are also the first place where children learn about conflict. And so hand in hand, you want to start to teach conflict resolution. And that's the key. We're going to be talking about some strategies soon, but I guess can we talk about the whys? When families are coming to you with sibling rivalry, really stressing them out, you know, upsetting the family dynamic, Um, what are some of the the main causes that we can point to? So first things first is asking yourself about your expectations. So you want to really be looking at 
what do you expect from your children and are they age appropriate and reasonable? Mm. The second thing you want to do is you want to look at the child in front of you, not the child you wish you had or the child that you are kind of working on moulding because there's no such thing. So if you have a child who is absolutely set that she does not want her sister to touch her things in her room, you need to accept that from the present moment, not create a story in your head of my child doesn't know how to share and hates her sister and will forever be like this this is kind of the stories that we start to tell ourselves, and it's a it's a recipe for disaster really so, so challenging challenging those thoughts and actually is that actually true or are we kind of filling in some blanks here and coming up with a whole a whole narrative mm. what are some mm. of the in, you have a, a free um program on this on on the on your website coach um, and it talks about the four common pitfalls I guess, when it comes to dealing with sibling rivalry. Would you mind giving us a little teaser on those and, I guess, helping out as many people as possible? We have had a number of messages for you as well, but those four (laughs) common pitfalls when it comes to sibling rivalry. Yeah, so once again, really looking, the pitfalls are your your expectations. The next pitfall is, you know, um, parents overlooking the temperament of their child. Thirdly, you want to be spending quality time with your children separately always lumping your children together in one activity all the time. I mean, we can't even do it as adults. Can you imagine if we constantly had to be with our partner, with our friend, with somebody all the time doing something? Mm -hmm. So you really want to be looking at that quality time with your child and asking yourself, am I always doing something with the children all together or am I spending quality time per child? And then lastly, what you want to start to consider is what are their individual needs? So parents fall into a pit hole of trying to treat children equally, right? And forgetting that everybody's got a different need. And this is always a very soft spot for parents. I once gave an example on on my social media and there were so many questions asked, but I took my boys to the mall because one child needed a pair of goggles and I wasn't going to buy the other child a pair of goggles. He had, he had goggles that were perfectly fine. And so this is an example of, you know, dealing with my child's needs as he needed them, not because I just want to buy two pairs of goggles for the sake of it. I, I'm smiling because I can just imagine the, but that's not fair, which is yeah, something we hear yeah. a lot in our house. Why does she and so get this it, and I don't? Yeah. yeah. And it ties hand in hand. So, so what's happening with parenting these days and why parents become so overwhelmed and ask me questions like, but, but why and is it okay if I do that? And we start to get really anxious about the decisions we're making is because we forget that parenting isn't a magic fix. So, yes, I'm giving you advice that you don't have to buy your children a pair of goggles if they don't need it. But now we step into the next realm of holding a boundary and allowing a child to feel disappointed. It does suck that you didn't get a brand new pair of goggles. I totally get it. I'm sorry you're going through that. We're not getting a pair of goggles today. All of those things are okay to do with your child. And in fact, it strengthens your child's emotional intelligence. I think that's such an important point and something I forget all the time. <laughs> but yeah, I think a lot I of parents, think... you know, we, we want to make our children happy all the time. You know, we want to protect them yeah. from being unhappy or distressed. But ultimately, you, you know, you're absolutely right. That long term, we're not doing them any favours at all. 
Yeah, and I think a, a really important point I, I forgot to mention is that we also become delusional with what and how we want our child to reply to us. So at no point ever in the history, so I've been parenting for 19 years, does my child say to me, well, mum, thanks for holding that boundary. That was fantastic. Totally get it. Um, and so there's two things here, parents and whoever's listening. It's one, you can hold a boundary and Two, expect not to be liked. I mean, holding a boundary is usually saying no to something or limiting something. And that never feels good for a child. Their brain's immature. They're living in like the adrenaline of it all. They're not going to consider, oh, I've got perfectly functioning goggles at home. She makes so much sense. Not going to happen. But Coach Mace, we've had so <laughs> many questions for you on the topic of sibling rivalry. So uh, we've had a message mm-hmm. saying, but my adult children don't get on at all. And I worry about after we've gone. Um, mm. And we've also had a message out saying we've had got three children. The youngest got additional needs. And the oldest one frequently comments on how it's not fair that we spend all our time. And we're going to be unpacking that as well. Talking strategies mm-hmm. for dealing with sibling rivalry on the show this afternoon. 4001 if you've got any questions for Coach Mesa. Talking parenting now, getting some real talk with Coach Mesa. She is a conscious parenting coach, uh, certified in behavioural therapies. So we're on hand as we're talking sibling rivalry in particular. So from tots all the way up to teens. Um, coach, I've had... A lot of messages on this um, and you were just talking there about the importance of treating our kids fairly but not equally and I love this distinction and um, we're going to go to the text line because it, it ties into this message that's come in from S and you can reach out on the usual channels 4001 the app the whatsapp you don't put your name on if you'd rather not completely understand um, S saying um, one of our three children the youngest has additional needs which require a lot of our time and attention our oldest frequently comments on how she feels left out. It's not fair. We spend all our time with him, etc. We're not sure how to handle this because she does have a point. She's nine and he's four. Any insights? Thank you. That's from S, Coach Mesa. Yeah, look, my first instinct is just to validate, like, the fact that that you've written, you know, in the message, she's right. I think that would be a really strong starting point with you know, hey, buddy, I I think you're right. We do spend a lot more time with your sibling and I'm really sorry for that. And what we do with an apology is we don't draw out any reasons or excuses or justifications behind it. We keep it there. And now where we want to go forward with that is we want to ask the child and, you know, age suitable as well, we want to see what they want to do, where they want to go with this. I mean, some children might be going down the path of, um, yes, so on Fridays, can you hang out with me? And other children might not have solutions. They just want to dump their feelings. And and the idea is just to listen to your child and see what's going on for them on a deeper level. We're always so scared to ask our children, you know, to tell us more. And I found, you know, in my experience, it's always the key to going forward with solutions obviously we're not going to have these deep and meaningful conversations in the heat of the moment or when you do have to take your special needs child to their appointment or whatever it is you need to do that's not an appropriate time but other than that that would be my first um, line of call Thank you so, so much. Um, no name on this one saying, my adult children don't get on at all and I worry about after we've gone. I'm beating myself up because mm. I've had sibling issues um, and in the fear of not passing on to mine, I think I've got it all wrong. 
Not a question as such, but I, I wondered if you could perhaps speak to that in terms of how our own experiences perhaps inform how we parent our kids in that in that sense. Mm. Yeah, look, I mean, as, as adults ourselves, you know, we can cast our mind and have a think about what would make my adult children not want to come to see me or not want to hang out with each other. Usually what research has found, look, I'm just going to say it straight out, what research has found is when adult children um, are not getting along, there's always a scapegoat and there's always a golden child. So if we're just going to look at the two children dynamic, in most families' conflict case, there's always one child that feels like they're they're the favourite and so with the favourite comes pressure. And then there's another child that feels like they're the scapegoat, which is kind of the black sheep of the family, which is the rebel, which is the outspoken one. And so this is where it clashes. And so if we want to change this narrative with our children, drop the labels. Drop the labels. And secondly, my top tip is talk about your children. Uh, you know, talk about your um you know, the brother in front of the sister in a good way. We want to be always reminding our children that we love and respect everybody in the household, you know, in a really fair way. So, yes, my daughter might say to me, oh, he's so annoying and so unclean or messy. And I might go, yeah, but remember last time he cleaned up such and such. And so it's yeah. this constant he, he reminder. This reminder. Right, yeah. Coach Mace is with us through until four o'clock today. Coach Mesa on the line. Uh, she is a licensed conscious parenting coach, cognitive behavioural therapist, and she helps parents become more confident. She's crucially a mum of four, so yes, has been in the sibling rivalry trenches and is very honest and open about some of the modern day challenges that so many parents are facing. We are talking sibling rivalry today and I've had a lot of messages. Coach, would it be okay if we just go straight to the text line? Let's do it. Let's do it. All right. Rick says, are there any ages where this flares up? We've got two daughters who are three and four. And so far, it's not so bad. Just a bit of bickering. Are there any ages where you see this, you know, potentially getting worse? Any triggers? He said, you know, ages Mm. and stages there. Mm. I mean, you know, I want to go for the stereotypical puberty years. You know, perhaps the Mm. teen hormones are going to rush in. And, and, you know, when, when teens kind of develop, they lose a lot of um, patience and a lot of empathy because they're still, you know, trying to work out who they are. So I think rather than trying to find the stages and ages, just keep going with whatever it is that you're doing and well done. Yeah, Rick, enjoy it because yeah. oh, it's wild <laughs> at our place. Um, can I came through on social media saying sibling rivalry among twins. My nephews are two years mm. old and even though they've got the exact same toys, one twin always mm. takes whatever is in the hand of the other twin. Even Mm -hmm. if he himself has the same thing in his own hand, he will Mm -hmm. still take the toy from his sibling and leave nothing for him. This this causes the other twin to become aggressive and starts hitting. How to tackle this situation? Yes, I'll answer this in a few layers. The first layer being that children don't actually understand the concept of sharing. They don't actually understand the concept of that thing is his and this is mine and it's identical because that is called logic. And so toddlers' brains are just wildly illogical, um, hence why peeling the banana the wrong way can set off a tantrum. So that's first things first. You've got to release this idea that children are logical. Second thing, it depends on how you're reacting. So in that moment, 
that that has happened and one's gone, oh, that's my toy. What are you doing? Are you intensely stepping in and, and making a big, you know, hoo-ha about it? Because if you are, then their brain is going to go, right. So when I scream, mum screams. And so that's attention. So I'm just going to go for it. Rather, I want parents to start to understand, to step in like a sturdy leader. Hey, did you want that toy? Mm, that's his toy. Come, I'll play with you with this toy. And so what you're doing is kind of being a guide. You want to keep guiding your children to the right, um, not even a right, but more a resourceful outcome. Thank you. It's, it, it, you're right about the sharing. Adults don't particularly mm. like sharing. How can you expect a two-year-old mm. to be like totally down with it yeah take this yeah um so that that's with twins that's an interesting challenge uh no name on this one saying what should you do when it gets physical if there's hitting door slamming mm -hmm. pushing each other out of the way our boy is eight the girl is 10 anonymous message on 4001 there coach mesa yeah one of the most um common questions so first things first make it super clear in your family value system that no hitting is allowed or whatever is your rule right so if you're a no no door slamming person then you can also add that into your rule kind of think of yourself like a classroom does and at the start of the year a teacher tells her students all of the classroom rules for for the year and so once you've done that and you've acknowledged that and the kids know that now when the heat is on and one child has pushed another child then you step in and say hey that's not on you're not allowed to push and now what you're doing is you are enforcing the boundary which is what you are going to do not what the child is going to do because a boundary isn't a request a boundary is a statement so it needs to sound something like I am going to carry you and place you over there and I will sit with you until you calm down. This is not a punishment. This is not shaming or blaming. This is literally you being a sturdy leader. But of course, in all of this with hitting, you want to really make sure that you've checked in on the child that's been hit. We want to really show the hitter that your focus is more on safety and less on retaliation and retribution. So you really want to check in on, you know, little brother that was hit. Hey, are you okay? Okay, just wait here for a second. I'll go grab you a Band-Aid. Do the Band-Aid bit, then go back to the hitter and be like, oi, that is not cool. All of that being said, if things are unsafe and somebody's like brandishing an, uh, a stick or, you know, they're going to run out into the middle of the road, of course, common sense kicks in and you need to stop that behaviour. Coach Mesa with us today. Coach Mesa EQ on the line now as we talk about sibling rivalry. She helps parents feel more confident in their abilities in handling situations. And we are talking sibling rivalry. An awful lot of messages coming through for you, Mesa. Let's get to this one. It, it's, it's a longer one, but I think it's a really important one. Saying, I've got two sons, almost 11 and eight and a half. They go through periods of getting along and periods of not getting along. All normal. In the last six months or so, um, probably not getting on so much. It, the oldest constantly nitpicks, puts his brother down, says mean and kind things teases sarcastic patronizing and it is more or less constant any arguments or fallouts are generally down to him stirring causing trouble and basically baiting his younger brother who will resort to hitting as a way of dealing with them my mum noticed this recently she thinks it's normal but my husband and I can't think it's more I can't help but think it's more extreme than that any tactics or parenting tips for dealing with mean big brothers that's from AF on the text line yes this is the quintessential Typical sibling question that I 
you know, framed my entire mini course on on this idea of why is this happening? Is it extreme? Is it not? Give me all the answers. And so, you know, to condense a, a nearly three-hour mini course into, you know, some simple specific strategies for you today, I would first look at, okay, what is going on for each child individually? So my first look would be magnify the glass and look at what am I doing with my older child when it's one-on-one time and am I doing one-on-one time and what am I doing with my younger child one-on-one time? Then I'd look at my actions. I'd ask myself, okay, what am I doing when they do fight and what am I doing when they're not fighting? So this, um, this you know, is called watering the flowers and not the weeds so when they're not fighting we really want to drum in like wow i love how you guys are getting along so that their brain can start to fire off some neurons that says wow i get really good attention when i'm doing the right thing because if we're constantly going why aren't you getting along and this is really tiring and i can't believe you did that then their brain synapses will start to form okay so i get attention when we fight it's a phenomena called the undue attention and children do this really well Basically, any reinforcement is reinforcement. So what we want to do is we want to look at our behaviours. So those two things, what am I doing and what am I doing with my child? Thirdly, we want to teach children how to fight fairly, how to do conflict resolution. So in that heat of the moment, when big brother, when little brother has had enough, you know, and, and he's pushed um, big brother, we want to teach them how to express that in a more resourceful way. I would be teaching them outside of the moment. I'd be sitting down with them and teaching them things like, hey, this is what else you can do when somebody's annoyed you and giving them some ideas. So that is quite a succinct summary for a really in-depth question. But I would definitely be starting with those three ideas. Thank you. You mentioned your workshop there that um, that uh, people can get involved in. Um, mm. So uh, would you mind just sharing a little bit on that? Um, where can people can find more resources, Coach? Yeah, definitely. So I wrote the Sibling Rivalry Workshop literally based on my experiences, both, both professionally and personally. And I think it stems from the idea of, you know, I wanted everyday scenarios to be unpacked in a way that I could help parents and so you can jump on coacheq.com.au and you know check out the the webinar that's available it's a recorded webinar that is in short snippets that covers things like why sibling rivalry happens and what to do when the actual fighting pushing has happened Mm -hmm. because believe it or not when that fighting has started it's kind of too late to talk about it you've just got to help them through that moment Thank you so much for your time today and your honesty and your instructions. Um, it's, uh, it's, always, it's always fantastic. As I said, we had a lot of messages we didn't get the time to, to get to, but I know that webinar on resource is really, really helpful. So if anyone wants to just send me the word coach, I'd be very happy to send you the link. Um, and speaking of resources, your Instagram is just fantastic, May. So where can we find you um, on the gram? So it's at Coach Mace EQ. I'm on socials under that name. Thank you so, so much. Coach Mace. amazing guest today and I'm happy to have one of my favorite people to follow on Instagram in real life 
born and raised in Saudi Arabia. Nelly Atta is part Lebanese, part Saudi, and after graduating, she worked in mental health as a psychologist and as a coach and therapist. And then, well, she pivoted in grand style. She is now an entrepreneur, an athlete, a world record holder, the first Arab woman to summit K2 and part of the Endurance Excel platform, bringing together some incredible humans for talks, workshops and expeditions. You're going to be sitting down for the next hour, Nelly. Is that going to be all right? I feel like you're someone who doesn't sit down very easily. I'm feeling a bit restless, but <laughs> being in your presence, of course, I am okay. Thank you for having me. My Helen. absolute pleasure. As I said, I love following you on Instagram. It's been an absolute honor and privilege to see everything you've achieved over the last couple of years. It really, really has. Um, and I wanted to go back to the beginning a little bit. Like, What do we need to know about you as a child and your upbringing to understand the woman that you are today now? I think I was very curious um, and my parents encouraged my curiosity. Uh, they encouraged it and I think this is why I am where I am today and I pivoted a lot and I continue to live with curiosity so I think this is uh, this is what it was like for me as a kid. So always exploring, were you an active family? Uh, more or less I think we were like your standard family but my dad may he rest in peace he loved sports and it was part of his daily routine so that kind of um, that kind of was part of our family culture mm -hmm. uh, and my parents did put me in different recreational activities I wasn't an athlete per se but I did used to be active as I was a kid so what attracted you to psychology initially and how do you think it served you over the years as you've taken on more and more amazing challenges I wanted to be able to help people. I was drawn to helping people. I initially studied economics, and then I felt like, no, this is not the way I can help people. And then I pivoted, and I tried psychology, loved psychology, and, and I decided to continue down that route. Um, and then I ended up doing my master's, and I worked in the field for a few years. But then I didn't feel like this is where my impact is, because at the time I was also teaching dance and fitness classes in Saudi. And I felt like this is where I was helping people more mm -hmm. uh, than I was through therapy. I still implement psychology in what I do. It still serves as the basis of everything for me personally and for my clients. But it's just different. Um, the outlet is no longer therapy. It's sports. It's a different kind of therapy, I suppose. More coaching Absolutely. than couching maybe yeah, yes yes you can have that if you want that yeah i love uh, it so we are we're going to talk about move and your impact on um on saudi and your your legacy i guess as an arab woman but i wanted to ask you a little bit about why climbing why mountains what was calling to you and where did it start originally it started with hikes as i was a kid um recreational hikes in the desert and i remember looking at insects looking at the rock formations and my dad would be like, you know, just leave everything as it is. And, and that stuck with me. Um, and then when I was 17, my dad took me to Mount Kenya. He was living in Kenya at the time. And that experience, I mean, we were not prepared. We didn't end up summiting the mountain. But that left something changed in me. Being in nature for two days, being completely out of my comfort zone, not looking at myself in the mirror. I remember these things like, wow, I love this. I came back super refreshed. Although we didn't summit and we didn't hit our target, I came back feeling different. And uh, I just wanted to do that when I was older. You have spoken so beautifully today and in the past about connection to nature. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you've summited K2, you've been on Everest. We can talk about the, the many peaks that you've been on. Do you feel like every mountain can teach you something? Of course. Some are great experiences, some are not the best experiences. Mm. 
but I always feel like I come back with so many lessons. And even on the same mountain, I've been to Kilimanjaro, for example, twice. Both experiences were completely different. Mm-hmm. I've been to Jabal Jais here over 20 times, and every experience has been different. So, yeah, you always come back um, changed or charged. It's funny you're talking now about that memory when you were 17 of like not having looked in the mirror. And I think for a lot of people, women, I think in particular, mm. are a bit put off by like, I'm not going to be able to shower or use a proper toilet for a week or, you know, those kind of luxuries and stuff. When I did Kilimanjaro, <laughs> what I was really surprised was I actually didn't care. I would have the wet wipe, you know, kind of bath every every day or not even that some days and I was like am I just a secret scruff and I'm now just tapping into something that I actually really like has that been a bit of a surprise to you over the years that you haven't really missed the home comforts of course actually it's funny Helen um on a day-to-day basis or in like you know when I'm at sea level (laughs) I actually get grossed out pretty quickly I don't yeah I, I, I don't share uh, utensils with people not even my mom but then when I'm on a mountain it's completely different because the environment is different and it's a lot of the times it's a matter of life and death. So this is why I feel like this actually takes, this is like a holiday. Because when you go on a holiday in a five-star resort, you're still connected. You're not challenged. You don't know much about your potential. Mm-hmm. But when you're climbing, you're completely out of your comfort zone for so many reasons. And there's so many variables that you can't control. So, yeah, I, I feel like another side of me comes out there. And we don't shower sometimes for 20 days. Um, but then you have to get resourceful, you have to get creative. And so, yeah, I feel like um, it's uh, another side of me comes out there. Nalia Atta with us today. If you've got any questions for her, and it can be to do with climbing, movement. Um, we've had messages about packing. So and we might, maybe we'll come on to packing and snacking next. Uh, she is the first Arab woman to summit K2, an incredible achievement. And she's also a world record holder for something quite unexpected. Nelly Attar is with us today, born and raised in Saudi, and I need to correct myself. I said earlier she was the first Arab woman to summit K2. Nelly, that's simply not the whole truth. Go on. Perhaps. Uh, I became the first Arab to summit K2. Isn't that interesting that media, because the headlines are all about that first Arab woman, but you are the first Arab to summit K2. Yes, and it is worth mentioning that there were other Arabs on K2 that season, but I just so happened to be on the summit first how close was it it was uh, a matter of hours wow yeah, yeah, yeah. yes see uh, i mean they were amazing athletes and i uh, i'm i'm very very happy to see other arabs in this uh, in the space as well but you you're a huge part of that is that representation this idea of like you know you can't be it until you see it and to have you know a young arab woman you know, climbing Everest, being the first Arab on, on K2, it's, it's, just, it's just amazing. We had a message here saying how absolutely amazing to hear Nelly. Brilliant, inspiring, and she's just so incredible. Thank you. Oh. Thank you so much. Um, can we talk about K2? What makes it so dangerous? Um, wow. Uh, where do I start? So it's known as the Savage Mountain. Uh, statistically, one out of four that try climbing K2 die trying. What makes it dangerous is it's super high altitude um it's just 200 meters lower than everest um i mean so you have the altitude you have the avalanche risk Mm -hmm. you have the risk of rockfall during the season that we went on there was so much rockfall so if if a rock comes down to these 2000 meters above your head it will just kill you instantly and then the terrain the terrain is so exposed it's super steep one mistake can cost you your life there's crevasses everywhere 
So it's not just the terrain, but it's also the altitude. It's the the weather conditions. Um, K2 is known for that. The so weather changing quickly. Like instantly, it can change instantly, and you can get caught up in a storm, um, and so then you're at risk of frostbite, hypothermia. Um, How on earth do you begin to prepare for a trip like that? It starts with a step, um, as cliche as it sounds, but you know, it starts with this has been like a very, very long journey for me. It started with single day treks and then multi day treks. And then trekking became part of my life. And then endurance sports became part of my life. So I started doing CrossFit and triathlons and marathons. So I've been building up for this, not knowingly, like K2 wasn't the goal. Um, but I've been building up for this for years. And then when I decided to do K2, it was after Everest. Um, and I spent three years training, very, very consistent with uphill training. And one year leading up to K2, it was laser sharp focus on K2. Um, I was training up to 30 hours a week. Is there a danger of knowing too much? You know, people have written books about their experiences. You know, you're part of the Endurance Excel platform where people come together and talk about the challenges that they have been through. And that's, that's hugely inspiring. But I often worry that if you hear too much, it can get in your head. How did your background in psychology help you mentally prepare for it? So I'd manage that um, because, of course, it's not just about what you read. But also when I shared this news with friends, a lot of friends were against me climbing K2. And I, one of the reasons why I love climbing is I always do it with friends. And it's, it's the shared journey that makes it meaningful. K2, none of my friends wanted to join. Um, so I just really focused on the possibility of making this. Mm-hmm. If um, 300 people before me were able to do K2, then why can't I? So I'll do what they did, and then I'll train more. And I mean, I have plenty of experience when it comes to training, climbing, and even therapy. Um, and, and climbing, high altitude climbing is largely mental. So I would really try to focus on the possibilities and my faith. I have strong faith. Um, Did you have any mantras or anything that you found yourself coming back to again in the really hard moments on the mountain? Of course, I would always pray. I would always say du'as and I would always say Allah. I would literally say this over and over again, especially when there's like we're in a really high risk situation. Um, and then I just remind myself that I've been through the hardest pain, which is uh, losing my dad, Alirhamu. I lost my dad a year before, um, like doing K2, and that was still very fresh for me. So I, I just think if I had gone through that, I can go through anything. We spoke earlier to Seema Akawi, who lost her husband. Um, she found out when she was seven months pregnant that he had a brain tumor, and she's written oh. a book for children about dealing with grief. And I asked her the same question, and this is no way a planned show about strength through grief and coming out stronger. But I asked her if losing the love of her life um, made her stronger, made her braver, because as you said that, the worst had already happened. What was it like for you in terms of carrying your faith, but also your dad's memory? And what impact do you think it had? Of course it makes you stronger. You don't know how strong you are until you go through that kind of uh, pain and I mean as it was the hardest period of my life I don't know how to even describe it in words it was just nothing prepares you for that but after you go through grief you realize there is still life after life because I would always think if I lose one of my parents that would be the end of me that would be the end of life um But then, like, subhanAllah, you end up having strength and God equips you with strength when you need it the most. And there is 
there is beauty through pain and there is beauty through grief. You realize how precious life is. And I think it's made me love more. It's made me experience life with more colors and more emotions, truly. It's made me more empathetic, more compassionate. And it's made me realize how strong I am. Well, my goodness, there's absolutely no disputing that fact. Nali Atta with us today. We are talking about challenges, adversity, faith, and next, world records. Nelia with us today, the first Arab to summit K2, part of the Endurance Excel platform. They bring together some incredible humans for talks, workshops, expeditions, um, and you're a world record holder as well. Here's my question. Um, did you have the Guinness Book of Records when you were growing up as a kid? Do you remember looking through the book? Of course. What was your favourite one? I don't remember. You don't remember? I was obsessed with like the long hair and the long fingernails. Probably, <laughs> and food. Um, yeah, I, I just remember being amazed by it all. And did you ever think that your name would be in the pages? Maybe, perhaps. Yeah, you did. <laughs> Can you show, show me your fingers? I'll show you my hands. They look like normal hands. I mean, they're a little bit snarled up. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> what, 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 why are you in the record book, Nalia? Okay, so this is pretty random. Um, so last year... Uh, so after K2, I tore my meniscus and I kept training, but it didn't get better. So then I ended up joining jiu-jitsu as a way um, to continue training. I've been thinking about doing jiu-jitsu. Don't. Oh. Uh, yeah. Okay. So, okay. Just save me a gym membership there. Thanks very much. <laughs> so that's, I got into jiu-jitsu as a way for me to continue training, but not have too much impact on my legs. Mm. Well, little did I know, two sessions in or three sessions in, I ended up snapping my ankle. Uh. Uh, yeah, and I ruptured one ligament toward three. So then running, climbing, everything was completely off for three months. So the second day after I came to find out that I had, uh, you know, this pretty serious injury, I started doing pull-ups. And I was like, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to do more pull-ups. I love pull-ups. And it was then... <laughs> I was going through a lot at the time, actually, and I just kept thinking, pull yourself up, one more rep, pull yourself up. And it was then that I thought, you know what? So I can stay consistent with training. I'm going to set myself not a national record that I was training for with jiu-jitsu, but a global record. And it's just really weird how it all happened. In September, they contacted me. Guinness World Record actually contacted me. It's just so weird. And say what we hear a bit handy at the pull-ups. No, they're like, oh, we came across your account and we see that you like calisthenics. Would you like to attempt a record? I was like, are you for real? Like, I, I actually wanted to reach out to you guys. Is this for <gasps> real? So they gave me two weeks to find a record to train for. Two weeks only. But I was anyways training for pull-ups. And so instead of maybe doing it in December, I had to do it in September. And uh, I just kept thinking, you know what? Go for it. You will only know if you try. So what is the world record that you hold? Uh, 16 two-finger pull-ups within a minute. Actually, it's two fingers per hand, so it's four fingers. Uh, the most four-finger pull-ups in one minute. Was this a new record, or, do, or is someone now out of the, of the records books? I think we set the record for that. Wow. Naliata, check you out. So, show me your hands again. <laughs> <laughs> what about injuries on the mountain? Lost toenails? I've been in much pain? Um... 
Injuries, I would say just my meniscus uh, that I, and it was a very silly accident. Uh, we were actually descending and I tripped over my tent. But isn't this when most accidents happen on descent? No, I mean it was... It was we, just a stupid accident. It was a stupid accident because we're actually at, at camp, oh. on camp two. We woke up in the morning to move down and I tripped with my crampon uh, over the tent. I was trying to avoid like walking over the tent and then I fell on my knee and uh, that's how I tore it. And then we had to descend 60 kilometers on it. But otherwise, fortunately, alhamdulillah, I never sustained um, any injuries while climbing. I would just say, coming back, I feel super depleted. Mm. The harder the climb, the more depleted I feel, emotionally and physically. What's that like coming back? Because I'm kind of drawing the parallel of astronauts, when there's been lots of talk when astronauts come back to their homes, to their families, to, I guess, life. There's a sense of feeling a bit other removed and I mean acclimatizing is probably a good word for it given you know the heights that you climb to what is that readjustment period like Uh, it's like a dip it's a massive dip and the higher I go the bigger the dip Mm. Um, and it's just my nervous system is super taxed everything kind of gets overwhelming again because I'm so used to just focusing on one thing and one thing only staying safe and healthy on the climb you come back and it's overstimulation from everything from like the people around you to work to tech and you know social media Mm -hmm. and so I always find myself getting overwhelmed the first week or two and I'm super down as well Mm -hmm. Um, and then do you find yourself looking for the next thing of course of course Um, I've had a question here from Martin saying what about food on the mountain so snacks What's you, what are you, some of your go-tos that we will always have in your bag? Um, I always have peanut butter. I always take peanut butter drawers with me. Does it not freeze? Well, it's okay. Don't I don't care. I don't care. I put it in my sleeping bag. So th- literally, before we attempted the summer on K2, I had a whole jar of peanut butter. That's my secret. You ate a whole jar of peanut I butter? I ate a whole jar of peanut butter. Smooth or crunchy? Crunchy. <laughs> let's, let's get a sponsorship deal going. Let's see who we can find to sponsor Naleata. So peanut butter peanut butter what else do I like I love um, I love salt so I always have like salt tablets uh, salt pills I add salt to everything and we sweat we do sweat a lot mm. up there um, so I, and I love salty snacks and I I, t- I, I realize with experience that your palate changes like the higher you go your palate changes so I, I generally have a sweet tooth but the higher I go I end up just wanting salty snacks so I usually have chips, um, salted nuts. I love my dates, but dates freeze, and my peanut butter. And Melissa's saying, does she listen to anything? Of course. So audiobooks, music, what, like, are you able to? Does the tech work at that kind of altitude and, and temperature? In my tents, yeah. When we're climbing, we can't listen to music. You need to stay focused, focused. and you need to be able to stay connected with your teammates because we're clipped on to each other or we're clipped on on the rope, but you need to hear for like any warning signs. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, in my tent, of course I listen to music. Afrobeats, hip-hop, you name it. You need to go to her Instagram. There is some <laughs> dancing on mountains that you guys will love. Nelly Atta with us next. We're going to talk about being an inspiration to others, her legacy as an Arab woman. A lot of love coming in on the text line for Nelly Atar, the first Arab to summit K2. She's summited Everest. She's been to a lot of peaks and is also in the world record books. Messages are saying, this is your realest guest ever. So down to earth, crushing hard here. Oh, no. Thank you so much. Um, I wanted to ask you about the toilet. Is that okay? Can we talk toilet on the mountain? What are the, logis- what, what are the logistics? I mean, I'm not adverse to the old, you know, nature we chat. Um, 
apparently there's some some good views up on K2. <laughs> oh yeah. But you do you have do you have to go on go on the go. So up to a certain extent, there are some built-in toilets, depending on where you are. Like in Pakistan, in the Karakoram mountain range, no, you just have to go behind a rock. But in uh, the Himalayan mountain range, there's usually uh, tea houses where you can pee up until a certain extent, though. Beyond 5,000 meters, usually you have to hide behind a rock or, you know, just like hide behind somewhere. But it also depends on the mountains, like on Denali and... Aconcagua in South America, they have requirements where, like, there's certain areas allocated to pee, and then you have to poo in barrels or in bags that you bring down. Honestly, that is that is how we should all proceed to preserve the mountains, uh, because usually above 5,000 meters, um, your feces won't decompose and they just stay frozen. Yeah, because of the lack of oxygen and because it's frozen. It's, you know, yeah, below freezing temperatures. Um, but in Nepal, unfortunately, just people go anywhere. And, um, but, yeah, we, like the company I climb with, we abide by that. We always use wag bags, and uh, that's where we uh, uh, poo. And we m- might use a wag bag more than once uh, for sustainability reasons. Keeping and then, it real. And then if you, if you need to pee at night, we pee in a bottle. It's very hard for women, though, I have to say, especially if you're sharing a tent with men. So there's this new device, or a device that I recently discovered. It's called the Shiwi. I have, I have yeah. one. It's amazing. <laughs> Mine's Barbie pink. Like, I'm like, come, pink. is it? Yeah. And you just have to learn how to use it. But once you learn how to use it, you can pee while kneeling, standing. You don't have to take off your pants. So it's What a time to be alive. <laughs> um, Nelly, you are part of the Endurance XL platforms. They bring together other amazing humans for talks and workshops and expeditions um, how important is it do you think for people to really challenge themselves and to hear from people like you to realize that you know you don't need to be a natural born athlete or to have endless resources in order to achieve something incredible of course it's important how would you know your potential if you don't challenge yourself and only for me personally through challenges is when I feel most alive it's when I feel really uncomfortable doing something and then going through that and being pleasantly surprised because I don't have any outcome, um, a specific outcome in mind. And this is when I feel like I learn the most about myself and how I deal with uncertainty. And What about failure? I mean, you've got some incredibly you know, impressive accomplishments to your name. Have there been some moments where it hasn't worked out? And how have you felt about that? Of course, so many times. I just recently closed my business, which was one of the biggest... Um, biggest I think risks I've ever taken uh, opening the studio and then closing the studio but this is part of life and failure is important and we have multiple purposes in life and I think you limit yourself when you stick to a certain path or if you identify yourself with just one thing pigeonhole yourself when you like I I feel you should flow with life Um, and so my advice is fail fail often fail harder fail better fail again just yeah. try what do you want your legacy to be as a adventurer as an Arab woman I think is a really important piece and as I said that idea of representation what do you want people to be saying about Naliatha in 5, 10 100 years time I want them to say um, not about me about themselves um, I want them to say that movement has helped their life so much and that living authentically is uh, one of the most important things that we should follow that we should do 
Um, you're such a great example of it. Thank you. As Thank I said, you. you're one of my favourite people to follow on Instagram for the for the dancing, for the inspiration. If you want those details, you can send Thank me you. with Nelly and I will hook you up. Thank you so, so much. Helen, thank you so much. And you're one of my favourite people to follow. Well, there we go. It's a loving. And I'm glad you, we, we, we didn't have you getting up and standing up managed to sit down for a whole hour one of the most adventurous energetic women on the planet um thank you so much thank you so much for having me on february 15th the world comes together to observe international childhood cancer day a day dedicated to raising awareness about childhood cancer advocating for improved diagnosis treatment support for those patients and their families too Childhood cancer remains a significant global health issue. It's a leading cause of death by disease in children and an estimated 200,000 are diagnosed each year. So while the incidence is lower compared to adults, it is by no means insignificant. So we're shining a light today with Dr. Nancy, specialist in paediatric oncology at NMC Royal Hospital Sharjah. More than a decade of experience in paediatric hematology and oncology, diagnosis, specialised care for those under the age of 18. Dr. Nancy, how are you? I'm fine. What about you? I'm well. I'm, it's, this is one of these topics where I know the importance of having these conversations, but as a mother, it makes me really upset to think about it, to be honest. And I wanted to ask you, why was this an area of medicine that you wanted to work in in particular? Um, I feel this kind of patient are very vulnerable. Mm. So I feel they need uh, help and support. And as a doctor, um, when I choose from the beginning to, to be a doctor, uh, my aim and goal to help the kids, especially the kids. As a mother, as you mentioned, we feel too much empathy with the kids. I mean, I can imagine you must have had some amazing moments over the years. You know, I, I just heard from a friend the other day that her, her little daughter just rang the bell after having years of leukemia treatment and to see the hospital coming together to celebrate that was amazing. But I can imagine, so you know, from the highest highs to the lowest lows, there must have been some heartbreaking moments over your career as well. Yeah. Well, we're going to be raising awareness today, the most important thing, because... With all types of cancer and so many diseases, you know, prevention and early intervention is so, so crucial. But I wanted to start, if you don't mind, by asking you to address some of the myths, the misconceptions, the misinformation maybe that you still hear about childhood cancer. And I guess put things right today on the radio. Yeah, there is a lot, but we can go uh, focus on some of the most important. Number one, that cancer is a disease uh, makes the kids, um, we, can, we can say, all the kids having cancer, they will, they will pass away. This is completely wrong. Now, the overall survival, or we can say the kids who live for a long time, more than 90%. This is a very, very good news, especially in the, developing, in the developed countries. Uh, because they have uh, good treatment, good service, good support. So the survival is 90%. It is maybe we can, we can say it's more than uh, simple uh, treatment. So the overall survival is very uh, high. Um, that the kids in, uh, will not tolerate chemotherapy. This is also a big myth because uh, we, uh, we can compare that the kids don't have the comorbidity. I mean, some disease like uh, obesity, like heart disease, like hypertension, like diabetes, like adult. So their kidney function or the, how their body function with the chemotherapy is more, more, more 
um, we can we say responding to treatment more than the adults. So they're more resilient than we might realize. Exactly. Even is the same treatment. Uh, sorry, is the same disease with like leukemia protocol different in pediatric and adult. We give heavy treatment in the pediatric. They will not suffer in the adult. Dr. Nancy, what types of cancer affect children? Uh, it's according to the age, as you mentioned, because in like leukemia, we can say like more than uh, one third, like 30% of frequency of cancer is leukemia. Second frequent is brain tumor, we can say almost 28%. Uh, then another disease like lymphomas, like uh, brain, uh, bone tumor, uh, kidney tumor, like that. But number one, leukemia, and the peak age is from three to five age. This is the peak age. Gosh, um, so I guess we're going to be talking about some signs and symptoms, which is really a crucial part of what we're talking about today because misdiagnosis, late diagnosis, ignoring of signs um, can be life-threatening. And I know it's going to depend on the type of cancer when we're talking about things to look out for, but if we're using leukemia there, you're saying the most prevalent childhood cancer. What are some of the things parents need to be tuned into, Dr. Nancy? We don't want the parent to be panic. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> no scaremongering, yeah. just information today. Yeah. As you mentioned, uh, cancer in kids are very rare. Like we can say one in uh, three kids in, uh, in 10,000 or 400 kids, 400,000 per year diagnosed. So this is a number is very rare. So not all the kids having fever, they will have a cancer. Mm -hmm. But we should, when we go to the doctor, when to more investigate. Like as you mentioned before in leukemia, we go, go through this. Uh, leukemia usually it's a disease of bone marrow. This is the place when all the blood products is um, done. So number one, the kids will have some pallor but not pallor due to uh, simple anemia because most of the kids not eating well. So not only pallor, also fever for more than one month not responding to antibiotic because usually the kid will have some fever, will go doctor, take antibiotic and he will respond and recover. But this child have repeated infection. He finished this infection, then go again and go through another infection. Any lump, any lump in, uh, the, uh, in the neck, under the arm, in the inguinal, in the lower abdomen, all of this will make some suspicious. Also the activity level. The child usually have fever. Once the fever resolves, he will be active and go and go and go and but, full, yeah, full active. But if it's a low energy level yeah. sustained. Low energy level, he is not sharing the, um, in, in, in the school. He's sitting on the corner. He can't go, just sleep, eat and sleep like that. Also loss of weight. Also some abdominal, his abdomen will become more and more big because usually leukemia makes uh, some organs big like liver and spleen. So this kid will have some abdominal enlargement. Mm -hmm. uh, also some patches, blue patches all over his body because the platelet count low goalless. So not only fever because all the mother will have panic and some lumps, you know, some kids have the sample lumps in their uh, neck. But we can go like any symptoms, any symptom from what we mentioned, but it stay or persist for a long time, more than two weeks, more than one month, this child should have the chance to be diagnosed or examined by a doctor. We're going to talk next about that diagnosis, about screening. Um, joining us from NMC Royal Hospital Sharjah, Dr. Nancy, specialist in paediatric oncology, as we mark International World Cancer Day, raising awareness on Dubai I-103.8. So we're going to be talking diagnosis, we're going to be talking treatment. We've had a question saying, can it be prevented? We're asking that next.
We are marking Childhood Cancer Awareness Day, um, a, a topic that I know a lot of parents will find deeply uncomfortable and upsetting to think about but truthfully that's why we need to be having these conversations to raise the awareness because it is a significant global health issue. Uh, Cancer is the leading cause of death by disease in children and joining us we've got specialist paediatric oncologist Dr Nancy. More than a decade of experience and I, I wanted to say first of all thank you for joining us today but obviously thank you for the work you do because what a job my goodness what a job um we were talking there about signs and symptoms that parents need to be clued into and i know it's going to depend on the type of cancer we're talking about nancy but what, can you explain a little bit about what might happen in clinic um in theater to ascertain if a child does indeed have cancer you mean how we break through the news no how how you reach a diagnosis ah how would reach the diagnosis um usually we have the cases referred from the general pediatric doctor so usually the child, when, or the parents, when they come, they have some suspicious about the case, about how, but usually any parents, they have some, you know, denial that maybe this uh, diagnosis is uh, not correct, maybe the doctor will say something else, maybe they are uh, misdiagnosed, maybe the results are not good, so let's repeat, let's repeat. So we'll, do, we'll go through this dilemma. And then when we finalize the diagnosis, as we mentioned before, leukemia, when we, I like to, to speak about more leukemia because this is a more uh, frequent and usually with high, high survival, like 90%, as we mentioned before. So usually leukemia is very simple. Usually the child has some simple, as we mentioned before, but simple diagnosis like only complete blood picture, which is a blood test, usually it raises the suspicious. This is not the confirmatory diagnosis. We don't rely on this. We'll go through more and more details, like we took a bone marrow aspirate under anesthesia. But usually the CBC, it will raise the suspicious. So we'll speak with the parents that we need this bone marrow because we need. So, and then we go to the diagnosis, the final diagnosis with the bone marrow aspirate. And now the advanced in the diagnosis, we go through more on the genetics and the molecular and more sophisticated tests. It will help later on for the uh, choose the treatment individualized for the patient before we give everyone the same treatment now all everyone has his own specialized individualized treatment according to his uh, molecular map Dr. Nancy with us. We had a question on 4001 and you are more than welcome to reach out to contact any of our experts on the SMS, on the app and the WhatsApp too and you can of course be anonymous and I think what this message speaks to is as parents all we want to do is protect our children whether that is from bullies at school or a diagnosis that breaks our heart and the message is asking what can you do to prevent childhood cancer? Uh, this is maybe a daily question we uh, go through every day. Uh, cancer in pediatric is not like adult. You, usually adult we say preventing like stop smoking, go for a healthy life, for a healthy diet like that. But the kids they don't have this environmental factor to have the cancer. Usually it is genetic. It is genetic mutation like something uh, the child or the parents don't have the role to go through this. Mm-hmm. So. We can say it is not a prevention. We can say it is just early diagnosis. Once you have the suspicious, you will go to the doctor. But for the prevention, just eat healthy, uh, take your vaccination, uh, for breastfeeding, go through the breastfeeding, all of this normal, you know, like um, uh, recommendation, but it will not affect the, uh, to have that um, cancer. You mentioned before that actually children are incredibly resilient and able to take chemotherapy in a way that, you know, we might not think 
would be possible because of the lack of comorbidities, because there's the hypertension, the heart disease, the smoking, as you mentioned, diabetes. But there are some things we do need to be tuned into in terms of, I guess, effects of treatment. And I'm thinking particularly about teenage girls and the impact on fertility. How has that conversation changed and what, what ways can we help um, her have a family um, even after chemotherapy? Yeah. Uh, for some disease, the chemotherapy, usually because not all the chemotherapy will cause infertility. Some chemotherapy with special doses, very high, high dose, it will cause chemotherapy. For the boys, teenagers or the girls, we offer the uh, sperm preservation or in a blood ba- in a bank or uh, ovaries preservation, which is if the child or the teenager, as you mentioned, will go through a high dose of chemotherapy. Sometimes in the bone marrow, if they will go through bone marrow transplantation, receive definitely very, very high dose. But simple treatment with very low dose as we give to the child, it rarely it will affect the fertility. We have many kids, they have the, now they are parents and they are normally through the uh, marriage and uh, conception and delivery and everything but some 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 in some rare condition at this we 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 recommend and we advise them to go to uh, for sperm banking or ovary banking Dr. Nancy, thank you so much for your time today as I said not a topic that any parent wants to dwell on or indeed ever have to experience but it's so crucial that we keep on shining light breaking taboos and as you said earlier kind of busting some of the misinformation that is still around about childhood cancers dr nancy specialist in pediatric oncology speaking to us from nmc royal hospital charger we're meeting a mum next who following the loss of her husband is on a mission to talk to children about grief joined now by mum, by teacher, by author Seema Akawi. She's written a book called With You Always. It's for children, it's about grief, and it's the book she wrote after she lost her husband when she was seven months pregnant with her son Lucas, now five. Seema, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. The book is beautiful. It uh, came out a few you. weeks ago. You should be very, very proud indeed. But before we talk about the book, can we talk about Mark? Can you tell for us about sure. your late husband? Mark was a wonderful uh, human to begin with and a wonderful partner and a father. Um, he had a passion and love for life. And uh, unfortunately, Um, Out of the blue, he was diagnosed with a stage 4 brain tumor um, at the age of 44 and uh, 43, sorry. And um, with with his passion and love for life, he fought very hard um, through his journey of cancer. And um, doctors told us at the time that Mark would only make it past seven months from his diagnosis but he lasted with us two years so yeah so we're very very proud Lucas and I and our whole family and friends of his fight and um, unfortunately he's not with us today however we always remember him and honor him the best we can. I want to ask you about his legacy and, and how you honor him every day but the book I think is a really beautiful symbol of that and I'm it's so um heartening to hear that he did have some time with Lucas and yes um, but how do you begin to have conversations with children about grief when they're not able to articulate what they're feeling and you know what a thing for a parent to have you know on their shoulders um why did you think a children's book was was going to be the way you wanted to express what you'd been through but also help other families Seema so um as a teacher first and foremost you know you you share your experiences or you share um, things that stu- uh, students or kids might relate to through stories, whether you're just storytelling or you're actually reading a book to them. 
And uh, when the time came that I had to explain to my son that his father passed away, he was only two years old. And I thought honesty, first and foremost, is key. And uh, second of all, how can I explain it to him where he can remember him, still find the beauty in life, but also understand that grief is okay and it's okay to feel sad and it's okay to feel somber. And um, I just started uh, writing short poems um, every day as a form of grief and going through grief for myself personally. And uh, I transformed those poems into a very short story for uh, Lucas and other kids. And I thought if I could um, create a small short book for little children to understand that we may lose someone, we may miss someone, but we may sense them in our surroundings every day, then if that helps me and my son, then it might help other kids and other children around the world as well. See Matt with us today. The book is out now. It's called With You Always. Would you mind explaining, I guess, the central theme or if the story is such and how you hope it's going to resonate with young readers and their parents as well, of course? Yes. So the book is a short poem and it's a journey of a little boy who actually resembles my son and myself walking through the park or going through a day-to-day uh, you know, life. And um, just within nature, um, we always look around for little things like symbols of uh, butterflies or flowers or anything that is beautiful or pretty around us and how that gives us comfort or joy and finding the beauty in little things. And uh, from that, I created the story that uh, helps this boy that is feeling a little upset to try and look at the little things that might remind him of how beautiful life is and that if we miss someone, it's okay. And just, you know, to take a moment to remember them and smile again and continue forward. Seema, you know, writing about such a sensitive topic, you know, it must have been really challenging to think about how to pitch it in terms of being age appropriate, I guess, um, and have that balance of honesty that you mentioned earlier. How do you feel like you've managed to to navigate that? I think it just came from a very personal um, space. Um, When I first started writing this, I didn't think of it as the intention of it turning into an actual book that would be sold worldwide. I just thought of it as something very personal between me and my son. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I had friends and family encourage me to turn it into a book. And from that, I worked with publishers and editors that um, really liked the story and encouraged me to go forward with it and... uh, it transformed into this. Now a best-selling children's book, we should say, here in the UAE. Um, if you want details of the book, you can just simply send me the word book and I will happily send you a link. Seema Akawi staying with us because I want to understand a little bit about how this has helped her own healing journey following the loss of Mark and how do they honour Lucas's dad every single day. Seema Akari is with us today. She's a mum, a teacher and author of With You Always. It's a book she wrote following the loss of her husband. Um, Mark passed away when the little boy was just one year old and um, I have to say the book is such a beautiful tribute to him and I'm sure I'm sure the book that maybe you needed at that time, which I think is, is often such a, a crucial way of connecting with people, Seema. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about how I hate the word journey, and I'm so sorry to use it. It's okay. <laughs> the healing, the healing journey, or or how how writing, whether it's for yourself or for the book, has helped you in your grief. Um, it definitely is, and uh, yes, I mean, for lack of a better word, uh, healing journey for sure. Um, I, we, I think I'm still in it, of course, of course, and so would my son 
uh, be. Um, I, writing has always been something for me that uh, allowed me to express my emotions. Um, I'm considered an extroverted person, but in, in certain moments, I'm quite introverted. And that was my way of um, dealing with my emotions mm-hmm. uh, privately. Um, and uh, writing uh, has really helped me with that and cope with that in a way and letting out what I was thinking or feeling um, between a mix of positive and negative together all at once. I'm sure. I wanted to ask you a bit of a strange question, but it was it was a podcast I listened to during COVID. Um, and it was uh, Chimamanda Nozia Adichie, who, an author who said that when she lost her father, it made her braver than she ever thought she could be because... I'm going to try and not cry. Um, because the worst thing had happened. Yes. The worst thing she could have imagined had happened. Yes. So why wouldn't she go into the world with a newfound sense of courage? Very and I wondered true. if that resonated. Very true. Yes. Um, yes. You don't, you don't expect something this harsh to suddenly hit you. And uh, when it does, it's uh, very difficult to absorb. But you don't have time. Mm-hmm. So you have to absorb it and you have to take action and deal with it. And um, you don't really comprehend all of that as you're going through it. But when the dust settles and, you know, after the passing and everything, you realize um, basically, yes, you have gone through something, the most horrific thing you could have possibly gone through. And um, yeah, it allows you to take a different perspective of life. And, um, you know, you have to look at life in a more positive perspective. You have to take it. You know, don't take things for granted and try to um, really, you know, immerse yourself in the things that really matter. And uh, yeah, look for the beauty, which seems to be a big theme in the book as well. (laughs) I mean, my goodness, I I think about what you have been through, you know, giving giving birth at a time when your husband was having brain surgeries. I'm sure you've seen enough hospitals to last you a lifetime. For sure. Um, Lucas is five now. Yes. And I wondered how you celebrate how you talk about his dad how you honor him obviously the book is an amazing symbol of that but I guess just day to day in between you how what are those conversations like Seema so um in our in our in our first year um after Mark passing away we released a balloon every month in his honor um and we wrote messages in the balloons and we took pictures of them that I will uh, share with him as he gets older um, just as a like an album of this is how you remembered your dad in, in his first year of his passing. Um, and uh, nowadays, uh, our conversations about Mark are very natural, very normal. Um, nothing is taboo in that sense. Mm-hmm. At home, you know, his daddy and me, um, he always, when friends ask, uh, where's your daddy? Daddy's in the sky. And everybody points up and looks up at the sky and he smiles and he says it with pride. Um, so... Uh, we talk about him on a you know on a daily basis. If he ever has questions or if he ever has um, any inquiries, um, it's a very natural process to just have a conversation with him. We talk about his favorite music, his favorite food, um, and you know, thankfully he remembers a lot of that because he's still quite young. So I think just the memories of pictures, videos, and just that natural conversation. Normalizing it. Yeah. Seema, thank you so, so much. Um, I want to end with a, a book plug because it is, 
it is on sale now and I think it's such a valuable thing whether it is something you know a family trying to navigate grief or whether it's something you just want to be having a conversation with your children because I think books are such an amazing tool for you know almost putting words in our mouths you know to be able to have someone who can help us so where can people buy the book um, Amazon worldwide uh, Barnes and Noble Blackwells and Dreer with you always if you want details as I said you can send me the word book to 4001 Seema Kawi I think you're amazing thank you thank so you much so for much. being with us it's thank been an guys. absolute pleasure And thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai Eye 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai Eye in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.